Well, we need to put our hands together one more time because one year ago today, we moved into this building. So let's give it up for that. Yeah. No more carpet store for us. So thank you so much for making that that happen for us. Um, listen, we've been in a series on uh, on the family, and so if you're just tuning in with us, we... Um, We've talked a lot about um, about marriage, and uh, we've talked just about the institution in general, and then we've talked about parenting, and we've talked about being single, and uh, and so today we're going to end uh, this particular series um, talking about about marriage. And so um, this is a a Lego box, and um, we got this for Riley for Christmas. It's about twelve hundred pieces. And uh, she is very tactile, and so she loves this kind of stuff. And um, she loves uh, classic bugs, beetles, and so we, we found this and bought it for her. And what we have discovered is that um, there's a lot of pieces in, in this, but the most important thing about, about this is the picture on the front. Okay? And here's why. Because... Um, you can have a lot of pieces, but if you don't know what the end result is supposed to be, it can make it very, very confusing. And so I thought I would parallel this with our, our homes, our marriages, because I believe that you and I have all the pieces necessary to build something amazing. But God has the big picture, and so he's able to, to know exactly what you and I are supposed to do with our, our marriages. And it, it becomes a very frustrating uh, to any marriage when we have a lot of pieces and we randomly start putting them together using our own imaginations. Because you might end up with something that's supposed to look like, like this, but you end up with having just two wheels and one door and a sunroof that's not really supposed to be a sunroof, and you don't have a motor, and you just got a lot of missing pieces. And I don't know if you've ever put together a shelf by Ikea. Anybody anybody here ever put together something? And you end up with a bunch of leftover pieces. Uh, what I like to do with those is throw them out as if I succeeded. Um, and a lot of times we do that with our marriage. We have things and we go, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with this. And we abandon it and we skip out on it altogether. But let me tell you something. When you take all the pieces that you've got and you couple that with the big picture that God has, our marriages can be exactly what they're supposed to be. And so that's our starting challenge this morning is to take everything that you and I know about marriage, feel about marriage, perceive about marriage, and put it into the hands of God and let him dictate to us where all these pieces go, all right? Marriage for most is the second biggest decision of your life following your, your decision to be a follower of Jesus, and so we think to ourselves, who do I want or need to live life with as I follow Christ? So as I'm following him, who do I want to be with me in this journey? It's a very big, big choice. It's a very weighty decision. And so we've all known this for, very, for a very long period of time, but the divorce rate teeters around 50%. 
Now, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower, but we, we, we know this. It kind of stays in that, in that particular range. And we know that more divorce occurs in the United States than anywhere else in the world. And so it's almost a, a, a cultural thing. But when you look at, at the 50%, let's just say you got a 50-50 odds, let me ask what other area in our lives would we be okay with 50-50 odds? Would we be okay um, looking at a rental property of ours saying, you know, I've got 50-50 odds that it's actually going to have a, a tenant? We wouldn't be comfortable with that. What if we said there's a 50-50 odd that the foundation of our home is in good shape? We wouldn't be okay with that. Okay, if there's a 50-50 odd that eating bacon gives you cancer, okay, some of you are fighting that odd right now. Okay, you had it this morning. When we get married, statistically, we are stepping into a 50-50 odd, and a lot of us stepped into that type of commitment knowing very little to nothing about what it really meant, especially through the lens of following Christ. We knew we had feelings for someone. We knew we, we were attracted to somebody. We knew that whatever it was about them and whatever it was about ourselves, that there was something mutual about that. And we stepped in front of friends and family and God and a, and a pastor, and we made covenant, and we we were, were, were married, just lickety-split. And so today, we're going to end this series by looking at Paul's letter to Ephesus, where he is going to speak to the relationships in that church. And I'm going to take us there in just a minute. My wife and I have been married for 18 years. We've been happy for about 15 of those. And our first year of marriage was very interesting. A lot of people look at, at their first year of marriage and they say something like, you know, that was our year of adapting to each other, of living together, um, of picking up on each other's idiosyncrasies. And it was a tough year. It was a challenging year. But for us, it was different. I, I was working at a 24-hour residential rehab, and so I had the 3 to midnight shift, and my wife was working, and so she was working 9, nine to 5, and we never saw each other. It was just a different year of, of being uh, um, new, newly married. And so after we were married about a year, uh, we moved to Vir Virginia, to the Richmond area, and it was not a, a good setup where we uh, where we were serving a church, and the, it wasn't healthy. And and um, I started grad school, and so there was some pressure there. And then we were a thousand miles away from everybody we ever knew, our family, friends, every relationship that we had made. We had nothing out there, no connection whatsoever, and it started to take its toll on our our home. And we were only married for a, a year. And um, so we, one afternoon we got into this argument, and it was all my fault. And I know that because I've been told a thousand times it was my fault. And so I said something or did something stupid, and uh, she went back to our, our bedroom. We had a 700-square-foot apartment, and she, so you couldn't get away from each other. But she went, and she got in our bed, sat Indian-style, and pulled the covers over her head. Like, like I don't want to pretend I'm somewhere else um, doing something else, and so I'm just going to sit here in the bed. And, and I walked back there, and it was just this odd scene. It looked like, kinda like a very ghostly person, you know, just sitting in the bed. And I said, what's going on with you? And she said, I am ready to go home. I want to go home. 
And it was that day right then that I was like, we got to get out of here. I mean, if I want to save our marriage, if I want to be married, I got to do something. It was a very, very challenging time. We all have an example of that story, some form. It was a, a hard time for you, a tumultuous time, a very rocky time. You got a story about how you had to adjust life to stay married because marriage is hard. Commitment is hard, and sometimes it's, it's not full of, of, of joy. It's, it's decision only. It's based on I'm in this because I'm committed to it. Every single marriage in here has felt that particular way. A lot of times we speak vows at our, our wedding, and Marriage has changed, the, the forms change, it's traditional, modern, people change it up, marry inside, marry outside, whatever it is, but there's one aspect of the wedding that never changes, and that is at some point in that wedding, people look at each other and they say some kind of vow, sometimes a, some kind of commitment to each other, and in some shape or form, these words come out for better or for worse, meaning that when it's bad times, I'm going to stay with you, that I'm going to stand with you and you don't have to be afraid of being left by yourself. And when there's good times, I'm going to celebrate with you. Every, every wedding has some kind of verbiage like, like that. And we say those things with smiles on our faces and tears on our cheeks and you may be here and now in the middle of your vow, in the middle of, of your commitment, and it's difficult and maybe even painful, hurtful to have taken a, a pledge, a vow, a commitment, and have the pain that goes along with it. Many of you may be here this morning and you feel there is zero hope for you. And maybe you've not verbalized that to anybody. You wouldn't tell me. You wouldn't tell even your spouse. But somewhere in the midnight hour, when it's dark and the kids are in bed and the phone is turned off, you have this thought to yourself, I feel hopeless in this. Maybe your marriage is not on the brink of divorce, but you feel distant. So there's a lot of distance between you and, and your spouse. You wouldn't think of getting divorced, or you wouldn't think of, of splitting up, but you just don't feel connected anymore. And maybe everything appears fine, but it's not fun. And so the, the joy of it is gone. It feels more like clocking in and clocking out. I'm just, I'm doing my chore. I'm adding another month. I'm adding another year. And you just keep on going through the calendar of being married, but there's no joy in it. And maybe you're just your marriage is just stressful, just full of stress. And somehow you went from being newlyweds to two to three to four kids to two careers. You bought a house. You got a student loan. You survived Christmas through a credit card. You got a kid that's always sick. There's never time for just you. Or just your marriage. And somehow underneath that list of things that I just mentioned, the last thing on that list is your marriage, is your home. 
And so I want to take us to Ephesians, and I want to give you just a little bit of context of the city of Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church there. And Ephesus, which is now modern-day Turkey, was a thriving and influential city in Asia Minor. It was a major port city in the, on the Aegean Sea. This city was wealthy. It was cosmopolitan. It was pagan. It was a lot of prostitution. Adultery was very common. And there was a temple called the Temple of Artemis, who was the fertility goddess. She's also called Diana. This temple used to be one of the seven wonders of the world. And women would sell their bodies there and then give the money to Diana. So as we read this, I just want us to read it through that context of knowing Paul is not addressing a, a, a cute uh, church in a safe little city full of Christians. But he's trying to set the tone for a community to follow Christ. And this is why the language in it is so hard. I mean, he's coming out and he's saying, I've got to talk strong to you because you're not getting it. And so to follow Christ, this is how it's got to be. All right? And so let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read a a pretty lengthy text here. It's about 10, 10 verses. So let's go to chapter 5, verse 22. I'm reading from the NLT, so it may read a little bit different than what you've got in your hand. Here here it goes. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I'm going to talk about that word submit in a minute. So nobody throw tomatoes or anything. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands and everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved his church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of his word. Verse 27, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. Verse 30, we are members of his body. And as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one This is a great mystery, he says, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So we got some strong language. Okay, so Paul is laying it down, and he's going to try to make it to where there's, there's no... Guessing involved. So let's break this down some, okay? According to this, the husband's deepest need is unconditional respect. Respect is deep-seated in a man's soul. It is what affirms him. It is what makes him vibrant. It's what makes him feel like he's found his place, is to be respected. So when a man is huffing and puffing and defensive and cranky, he is really trying to say, I want to feel respected. And a wife's deepest need 
is unconditional love. And so when a woman is criticizing and crying, she is sending a cryptic message saying, I want to be loved. Because love is deep-seated in her soul and respect in his. So a man needs respect and a woman needs love, and it's as simple and as difficult as that. And sometimes we look at it the wrong way, and we verbalize it like, like this, okay? Husbands say something like this. I would love her if she respected me. And the woman says, I would respect him if he loved me. And so I want to take a pause and give you a quick resource and then tell you why I'm giving it to you. There's a great book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. This is it, okay? So write it down, take a picture of the screen, whatever you want to do, and get it. Sacred Marriage has a subtitle saying this. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Okay, And so the premise of Gary's writing is this. What if God is trying to reveal to us through our marriages how much he loves us? That through his unconditional love for us, that when we love someone who is not perfect, when we love someone who says dumb things, when we love someone who's been a jerk, we really understand how it is that God can unconditionally love us. And so our marriages become more about holiness than happiness. Chances are 10 out of 10 of us went into a home saying, if I marry him, if I marry her, then I'm going to be happy. We think it's the final piece. But what if it's not about our, our joy? What if it's about a revelation of who God really is? So it's a great thought. Husbands, then, and, and hear me, I'm going to continue to unpack this, but just stay, stay with me. Husbands, you are called by God to unconditionally love a disrespectful wife. And wives, you are called by God to unconditionally respect an unloving husband. Now, I'm not talking about abusive. I mean unkind, unloving. So wives, keep in mind, hear me, most of the time your husband is not trying to be unloving. It's not intentional. And husbands, keep in mind, most of the time your wife is not trying to be disrespectful. But God calls us to love it. So there's a lot that I could say this morning about how do we respect our husband, how do we respect our, our wives, but I'm going to break it down real easy. I'm just going to give two points on each of those. So I want to start with wives and how you can respect your husband. The first one is this, to give support. To give support. A man naturally carries a lot of responsibility. And I want you to think about this. There are a lot of men in this room right now. Everywhere you go, you are the leader. Everywhere. You go to work and you're the boss. You come home, you're leading your children. 
A lot of you are solely responsible for the finances and how it goes and what you invest and what you spend and what, what you save and what you're preparing for, etc. And all that is on you. You are leading that. Sometimes if you want your kids to be involved in extracurricular, you're the soccer coach, you're the basketball coach, you're, you're the football coach, you're all of those things. Everywhere you go, you lead. And here's the things, wives, is that they are designed to lead. So let them. Let them lead. Cut them loose. It's really sad, but Barna did a, a research uh, on, on this a few years back, and I hope it's changing. But the statistic was, was um, uh, just... Uh, crazy to think about how it was in church because men were leading everywhere except church. And so the study showed that it was like 70 to 80 percent of the ministries in church were led by women. That men, men were not involved, men were not serving, men weren't doing anything. Women are very or tend to be more expressive in church, so they'll lift their hand, or, and guys will put their hand in their pocket and fiddle with their car keys. It's how they're kind of hardwired. But we need men to lead in our church. The, the research group that Barna put together showed that when, when you put together a prayer meeting, it was full of women. Men wouldn't even come and lead for prayer. They won't lead for worship. And so I want to challenge you men. You're designed by God to lead, so don't just lead the soccer team. And don't just lead your career. And don't just lead your finances. Lead the church. Get out front. Serve something. Do something. Give something. We need your leadership. But wives, you've got to support. Now here's where I told you I was going to talk about submission. So let's dig in a little bit. Ephesians 5.24, again from the NLT. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now we've had a lot of fun with this verse over the centuries. Okay, And we've used it to um, expunge or just flat out stop an argument by saying, woman, you better submit. Okay, Now, a lot of us, uh, you know, we, we think that's comical, but it, it happens. And so men have thought, it's been taught that this submission was, you better get underneath me because God made me the head of this house, and when it comes to this thought, this idea, this argument, this thing's over because I said it's over, and you better get beneath me. Submit. And the women were like, I don't even like you. Why would I submit to anything that, that you're talking about? So let me give you a different visual of what Paul is trying to do here. A lot of theologians and a lot of teachers have interpreted this as more like a, a person who owns a pet. And so you're going to do what I say when I say it, and if you do that, I'm going to reward you. It's like classical conditioning. And so they think submission means just that. As long as you go along, we'll get A along, okay? And so, but it's not that. Submit, the word there, does mean lower, to, to submit, to come beneath. However, the second part of that that nobody ever studies out is this. It's I'm getting lower so you can be on top of me as a supportive position. Like, I am going to support you, therefore I'm, I'm submitting 
so that together we can go higher. Okay? So the thought there is not like uh, an owner of an animal. It's, hey, I love you and support you to the point that you can stand on my shoulders to achieve the things that as, as a leader in our home you need to achieve. So you can stand on me. You can put the weight on me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to applaud you. I'm going to be your biggest fan. When people come against you, I'm going to cut them. I'm going to do whatever I got to do to support you. Okay? That kind of changes it, doesn't it? And so this is the imagery we need to get into our, our homes. And it's not, woman, you better do what I say. But it's, it's you become a foundational piece for our home. You are the strength in it. Now, I'm going to get out front and be the tip of, of the spear, but you are the tension that makes this arrow gar, go, go the farthest. Does that make sense? Okay, two of you. Okay, let me give you a stat this morning. In a national study, 400 men were given a choice between two negative experiences. They had to pick which one of these negative experiences would you rather have, would you prefer? And the first negative experience was to be left alone and unloved. The second experience was to feel inadequate and disrespected. Three of the 400 said, I would rather be left alone and unloved than disrespected. The point to that that we should all be listening to is that's how significant respect is to a man. It's not that they don't need, need to be loved, but they need to be respected more than they need to be loved or feel loved. The second thing is contentment, okay? I'm going to give you two verses. I love these verses because I think Solomon was having a really bad time when he wrote these, and it's funny to me. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 19 says this, It's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Okay, now this sounds like, like an argument people would have, doesn't it? I would rather live in the desert than with you, okay? This is what Solomon is saying. Better live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now here's, here's a better one. He's about to trump himself. Proverbs 27, 15. A quarrelsome wife is like the dripping of a leaky roof in a rainstorm. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil with the hand. I just can't get a hold of her. Like, like a dripping, leaking roof. You know what I'm talking about? Drip, 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 drip. Shut up. Okay. He said that's what it's like living with a nagging wife. And so a nagging wife has never changed a man. But the Spirit of God can change a husband. I've seen it happen. But you cannot try. Ladies, hear me. You, your role is not to be the Holy Spirit. Your role is not to bring conviction. Your role is not to condemn. Your, your role is to respect. And so deep in every man is this need for contentment. And men carry a big desire to provide. It's just in them. The Lord gave it to them, and they are implementing. I want to provide. And the men who love their wives want to lavish them. Now, it, lavish can be on many, many levels, but 
We have this desire to lavish our spouse. And when we cannot provide the way we want, we take it personally. And we look around and we think, man, I want my kids to be in the best clothes. And I want, I want to, uh, her to be able to drive something nice and live in a nice place and have nice things and, and go, to, go to nice places. And we look around and when we don't see that or when we get into a comparison game, hear me, men, when we get into that, we're tempted to provide that outside of our means. And it turns into this negative pattern of, okay, I, I need a bigger house, I need a nicer car, I need a grander vacation, and all that is one. Wonderful if you have it. But if you have to falsify it, that's where you get into big trouble. And so 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but this is what it says. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Now the way that we read it in a few weeks ago, it said this. True godliness with contentment is great gain. That when I'm content with the person I'm married to, when I am content with what I have, it is great, great gain. And some of you feel like your marriage is a three-ring circus, right? You had an engagement ring, you had a wedding ring, and you had suffer ring. See what I, see what I did there? You guys, are, you guys are terrible, okay? Thank you. How do you love, love your wife better? Guys, let me talk to you for a minute. By communication. A recent study was done where it was determined women will speak 20,000 words a day. Men will speak seven. Okay? Now listen, I'm about to give you a nugget of information that's going to change your marriage completely. The best advice I can give you is a phrase that I learned that I use in my home all of the time, and it has kept us uh, in great shape. Here's, here's that, that phrase that I use all the time. And then what happened? Okay, that's what I say. Because it doesn't matter if you're checking your emails on your phone. You just say, and then what happened? She doesn't care. You can go back to the Bear Jackson auction. You can go back to the ball game. It doesn't matter. You just keep on going. And then what happened? And she'll just keep on talking. You know, 15,000 words, 18,000 words. twenty. Your goal is to tap that stuff out by the time the playoffs get in motion about 8, okay? If you can reach 20,000 by 8 p.m., you're going to be awesome, okay? Now, I'm, I'm going to show you this quick video. A lot of you have seen it, but it shows the detail and difference of communication between men and women. Watch this. It's just, there's all this pressure, you know? And sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head and it's relentless. And I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop. Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there. Stop would... trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just pointing out that maybe the nail is causing. You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. Yeah, see, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail See, you're out. not even listening now. Okay, fine. I will listen. Fine. It's just, sometimes it's like 
There's this achy, I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. That sounds really hard. It is. Thank you. Ow! Oh, come on. Ow. If you would just... Don't! <laughs> it's not about the nail. Okay? It's about listening. <laughs> the second big thing, and then I'll, I'll wrap up, up with this, is security. Wives want to feel secure. Could be financial security, and God gave us the financial obligations of of our home. He says it in First Timothy chapter five verse eight. This is strong language, but he says this: If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So it's very important to, in order to be a godly leader of our home, to work to provide, to make it, to make security be present there. And so women need to know that you think they are beautiful. You need to find out your wife's love language and speak it. Whatever it is that, that speaks to her the, the, the best and the biggest, find out what that is and keep on re- repeating it. And then last, don't bring up divorce. Don't use it in an argument. Don't wield it. Don't pull it out because here's, here's what happens. When you wield that word, you are saying to them that you are thinking about quitting, and when they feel that, the security is gone. So don't even bring it up. Don't even talk about it. And so let me end with this thought. Husbands, you don't need a, a better wife, and wives, you don't need a better husband. But we all need more of Christ in our marriages. Is it true that we are married to imperfect people? Absolutely. Do I have a lot of things that I've got to work on? Yeah. Does every husband in the room have a lot of things to work on? And every wife in the room has a lot of things to work on? Yes. But you can't look at that person and say, if, if only you were like this, or if only you were like that, then I would be happy. We all need more of Jesus in it. And most importantly, I want your takeaway from this morning to be this. If you have blown it in your marriage, there is still hope for you. A lot of times we view the work of, of the cross as being something that only relates to our eternal position. That because of the work of the cross, I get to spend eternity with Jesus, yes. But the hope that was given on the cross is applicable to every single circumstance that you and I will face in this life. And that goes for our marriage. The cross was powerful enough for your home. And so how that becomes practical is this. If there has been adultery in your marriage, or abuse, or neglect or bitterness, or selfishness, or lust, God will forgive you of it right now. Not in a week, not in a month, not after a conference, right now. Why? Because the cross was big enough, and it was great enough to save a marriage, to heal a marriage, 
to reconcile people back together. This is the heart of of the Father, to reveal himself to us through our homes. For us to know that when we're we're loving someone that's not, not perfect, that's exactly the mirrored image of the Father's love for us. That he is loving someone unconditionally that is not perfect. I want you to bow your heads with me real quick this morning. I want to talk to your heart.